My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the preachers. Good to have you all with us here, and good, great to have those of you with us who are with us on Zoom. If there is a God, it would be foolish to oppose him. Yet sometimes there are people, people who can't do anything to prevent power outages, computer crashes, ice storms, or earthquakes, who think that they can still prevent the work of God. I know, it, it doesn't make any sense, but they still try. But you might object that not everyone who opposes the activity of a particular religious group is truly opposing God. And you would be right, because not uh, all religions are not all worshiping the same God. And so opposing any particular group is not the same thing as opposing the true God. And in addition, religious groups have been known throughout history to do some truly spectacularly stupid things that are worthy of opposition. And opposing such foolishness can't be the same thing as opposing God. So how do we know what sort of opposition is the wrong kind of opposition, the kind that is found to be opposite the God of heaven and earth, which will not get very far. This week's text in Acts chapter 5 will help us to answer these questions. What does opposition to the true God look like? This is so that we can learn to recognize it for what it is, and not confuse it with something else. And you can see in your outlines that what it looks like, uh, I'm going to have five parts to it this morning. It looks like jealousy toward the continuing work of Christ, an inability to set limits on the continuing work of Christ, rage toward obedience to God, imbecility in the face of reason, and finally, motivation for a more sure message. Let me pray for our time in the Word. Our Father, we ask that you would draw near to us, for we draw near to you. We look to you, O oh, our Father. Please open your Word to us. Grant us life as though from the dead, that we might see you and see the Lord Jesus, that we could learn to recognize opposition to you so that we might be able to delight in you and stand fast in the midst of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in our study of the book of Acts, we find ourselves in a section focused on the early church's growth through pains, both internal and external. And in the bulletin, opposite the sermon outline, you can see a box where we've got an outline of the book of Acts for you, and we're in this second section where it has four parts that alternate between external pain and internal pain. So we've already seen one instance of external pain coming from outside the Christian community. And then last week, we saw at the beginning of chapter 5 the internal pain of Christian imposters lying to the Holy Spirit. 
And now Luke is taking us back to another instance of external pressure from outside the community. And the first thing we see here about what it looks like to oppose God is jealousy toward the continuing work of Jesus. Let me read verses 12 through 18 of Acts chapter 5. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Now, in the previous chapter of Acts, the high priest had warned the disciples of Jesus not to speak any further in the name of Jesus. And yet when they got home, they went right to a higher authority and they prayed to God, asking him for more boldness to speak in the name of Jesus. And they asked God to continue doing signs and wonders to heal the people. And here in, in these verses, now in chapter 5, 12 through 18, we see God answering their prayer from chapter 4 in spades. We've got signs and wonders in verse 12. We've got proclamation of Jesus Christ in verse 14 because it's producing more believers. We've got healing in verses 15 and 16. And one of the things we should notice here is that this beginning of the early church's ministry looks quite a bit like the beginning of Jesus's ministry. In Mark chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4, we're told of huge crowds gathering around Jesus. And they come from the towns all around Jerusalem in some points. And they bring their sick and their demon-possessed friends to the door of his house so that he would just speak or touch them to heal them. It's like, if only we can get close enough, we know he'll, he'll make, what, make right what has gone wrong here. And so Luke tells this story in such a way to try to make it clear to us that Jesus' work that he began in the Gospels is now continuing through his apostles. What's happening right here in this paragraph is not brand new. It's simply an account of what Luke said in the opening verses of the book of Acts, that this is an account of the things that Jesus continued to do and teach. So I already told you what he began to do and teach. Now this is what he's continuing to do and teach. So this, we have to see this connection. The apostles' ministry is not their own thing. It's simply a continuation of Jesus' own ministry. And so while Jesus' work continues through his apostles, there are a number of onlookers in this passage. In verse 
13, we have the general crowds that hold them in high esteem, but they won't dare to join their meetings in the temple courts, most likely because they know that the powers that be wouldn't approve, which, of course, they don't. So we get that group in verse 17 and 18, where the high priest, the Jewish high priest, rises up with his people, And they throw all of the apostles this time in prison. In chapter 4, it was just Peter and John. Now they grab all the apostles. Throw them in prison. Why do they do it? Why do they do it? We don't have to work too hard to connect the dots here. Luke, the narrator, does it for us. In verse 17, we're told that they rose up filled with jealousy. And this is the first thing we must notice about what it looks like to oppose God. It has very little to do with reason or with careful argumentation. It has almost nothing to do with what happens to be true. And it has very little to do with what would be best for humanity. It's really about who is in charge, who has the greater following, and where the time and the energy and the wealth of society are all going. And if you get more than we get, we've got to oppose it. So please be warned. Please be warned. If we don't make very much impact on the community around us for the glory of Christ and his kingdom, we won't be much of a threat and we'll be beneath the notice of those who oppose God. But, as soon as God decides to do something wonderful and to continue the work of Jesus through us, as soon as he decides to do something that offers serious competition to the prevailing narrative and the values of the world around us, then we will become public enemies. Because jealousy is one of the chief motivators of opposition to the work of God. So the first thing we see about what it looks like to oppose God is jealousy toward the continuing work of Jesus. The second thing we see is an inability to set limits on the continuing work of Jesus. Look at verses 19 through 26. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. These are the apostles who were thrown in prison. Brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. 
And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. (laughs) In this second section, we get a very funny scene involving a jailbreak. This is like, you know, why why heist movies are so much fun. It, It starts right here. Verse 19, an angel comes by night and sets them free. We don't know exactly how he does it. All we know is verse 23, the cells remained locked and the guards remained at the doors, but there was no memory of the prisoners escaping. So we don't know how the angel pulls this off, but that's part of the point. It's not necessary for us to know how he broke them out. The point is that God can send his messengers to free his servants anytime he wants. And the authorities can't stop him. They might not even know that it happened. The high priest thought he could stop the preaching of Jesus as the resurrected Christ by throwing these men in prison. But he can't. His opposition is nothing more than an expression of his impotence. And that's where this text gets really funny. In verse 21, he draws out the narrative. They send to the prisoners, uh, to the prison to have the prisoners brought into the council chamber, but they can't even find them. They lost their prisoners. And in verse 24 and 25, while they are perplexed, and they're wondering what could possibly have gone wrong, they get word that their prisoners are back in the temple where they weren't supposed to be, preaching the message that they were told not to preach. And so in 26, they send soldiers again to rearrest them, but they have to be really careful about how they do it. Because they fear for their lives, for the response of the crowd, right? It says that they brought them back, but not by force. Because they were afraid that the people would stone them. And I think Luke strongly suggests that if the apostles didn't want to go back with them, they didn't have to. All of this is further indication of how impossible it is for these priests to control the situation the way they would like to. Now, why all the fuss? Why are they so concerned here with this? It's all because of what the angel told the apostles to do. Did you catch that? What he wanted them to do when he freed them? Verse 20. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. You see, this message that they preach about Jesus and his resurrection is a message of life. It is all about the new life that God is bringing to this dead earth. It's all about the new world being formed out of the old one. It's all about the new way God wants people to live in repudiation of their self-reliance and in deep trust in their Savior. 
It's all about this new life of love for God and for other people. You see, what they preach is not just a set of new ideas, but it is a new way of life. And the high priest would like to set limits on this new life. He wants to paint boundaries on it. He wants to build walls. It's as though he's saying, you know, guys, this is, it's okay if you keep this to yourself and out of the public square. It's okay if you hold these things personally, as long as it doesn't bleed into your professional life. It's okay if this is part of your family tradition, but it's not okay if it places any demands on the rest of us. <coughs> the priest wants to set limits and keep this message in prison. And the narrator hilariously shows us how incapable they are of doing it. And such inability is not likely to sit well with those who are jealous to keep things in their control. So the second thing we see about what it looks like to oppose God is an inability to set limits on the continuing work of Jesus. The third thing is rage toward obedience. Verses 27 through 33. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So look at these verses. The high priest has two main issues in verse 28. His first issue is, you won't obey our instructions. He says, we strictly charged you to teach in, not to teach in this name, yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching. So you won't obey our instructions. And his second issue at the end of verse 28 is, you insist on blaming us for Jesus' death. You insist on blaming us for Jesus' death. You know, it doesn't matter that we shouted before Pilate, may his blood be on us and on our children. Why are you blaming us for his death? So do you, do you hear what drives those who oppose the work of God? With these two issues, you see, they don't want to be right. They want to be in control. And therefore, they don't want to persuade you. They want to humiliate you. And you see, they don't want to change. They want to get away with their dirty deeds. They don't want to be responsible for the blood that's on their hands. So they don't want to partner with you. They want to shut you up. The more you talk, the guiltier they feel. And the guiltier they feel, the greater is their urge to be rid of you. 
Notice in Peter's response how he doesn't even ask for a seat at the table with the powers that be. He doesn't want an interview slot on Fox News or CNN. He doesn't want a weekly radio show. He doesn't want to be called into the White House as a faith-based consultant. No, look, for Peter, it is all about obedience to God. You see, his response begins in verse 29 with, we must obey God rather than men. And it ends in verse 32 with, God has given the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. You see, his focus is on obeying God. And we need to remember, what what is it that they are obeying? The risen Jesus had told them in both Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1 that they must bear witness to his resurrection and his kingdom. The angel busted them out of prison only so they could continue to obey that mandate to be witnesses to all this life. And the Holy Spirit was sent to give them power according to God's promises of old for this task of bearing witness to Jesus. And so Peter's defense before the high priest here boils down to his commitment to obey the Lord Jesus and his heavenly Father in this matter. And in other words, what Peter is saying to the high priest is, as long as you refuse to allow us to obey God, we refuse to obey you. And he rubs it in with a reminder of who Jesus is and why he came. Verse 31, who is he? He is leader and savior. And why did he come? The end of verse 31, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You see, you can't get his forgiveness unless it's accompanied by receiving his repentance. You need to change. You need to obey God. You need to let go of your need to control things and let him be in control and everything will finally make sense and fit together in ways you never could have realized otherwise. But you see, all this talk about obedience and the Holy Spirit is for those who obey him. The implication is you're not obeying him, therefore you're not getting the Holy Spirit. This only enrages the priests in verse 33 and it provokes them to murderous desires. So what does it look like to oppose God? It looks like a refusal to obey. And not only a refusal to obey, but it gives you a blind rage toward those who refuse to obey you. You are enraged that others would obey, would dare to obey God instead of obeying you. That's the third thing about what it looks like to oppose God, is this rage toward obedience to God. The fourth thing we see about what it looks like to oppose God is imbecility in the face of reason. Imbecility in the face of reason, verses 34 through 40. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, 
and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So in the midst of the murderous rage of the council, there's a glimmer of sanity. There is a man held in honor by all the people. His name was Gamaliel. We learn later in the book of Acts that he was the personal mentor to the one who had become an apostle, Paul. Paul studied under this guy as a rabbi. This guy is hardcore. He is, was well-respected. And he says something that, though it may fall short of being infallible in every case, it's really quite sensible in these circumstances here. He gives a few examples in verses 36 and 37 of failed messianic movements. So there are these uprisings, and in both cases, the leader was killed and the movement fizzled out. Neither of these movements saw the leader resurrected to vindicate his claims. But he was killed, the movement fizzled out. So he suggests that they just let this thing run its course as well, this Nazarene sect, because if it's not from God, it'll fizzle out in the same way those other things did. But if it is from God, not only will we be unable to stop it, but we just might find ourselves in a position of opposing God. The very God that we claim to serve. What Gamaliel proposes here is really a very rational thing to do. He goes back to the foundational premise of the movement which claims to be from God. You see, if that claim is false, the claim to be from God, if it's false, then the movement will defeat itself. But if the claim is true, you don't want to get on the wrong side of it. And so astonishingly, in verse 39, they took his advice. Perhaps they're in danger of doing something rational here. But then, verse 40, they beat the apostles, and then they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. So if you're going to let this thing go, let's see if this is from God or not. I mean, why would you beat them and tell them to stop? But hey, at least they still let them go. There's an important point here about how to recognize true opposition to God which is this. It, opposition to God is so blinded by rage because it's unable to set limits on the work of Christ because it's jealous. It wants the power and the money and the resources and the attention. Because of all that, even when presented with a possible win-win solution where everyone can save face and allow for the possibility of reasonable outcomes, 
the opponents of God will still choose to act like imbeciles. They will get their digs in. They will extract punishment in order to maintain their power. And they will attempt to squash, to cancel out dissenting voices, and to intimidate into silence those who make them feel insecure. Now, let's think about our day. In light of how all the big tech companies have been acting in recent months, you might think that it was these Jewish priests that were the founders of Facebook and Twitter. When you see reasonable and rational voices being canceled out and social media accounts being suspended and public discourse over matters of religious faith, they are considered not only politically incorrect, but even misinformation, or even more likely, something like hate speech. This is simply what opposition to God has always looked like. Now we have to remember that not all opposition to us is the same thing as opposition to God. If you go and say or do something foolish or sinful or untrue or selfish and you get criticized for it, you don't get to play the persecution card to make yourself feel better. You need to seek counsel and perhaps repent of believing or promulgating lies or whatever it is. The, the opposition I'm talking about here is the attempt to cancel out the divinity of Jesus Christ, his exclusive claims, belief in his resurrection, his message of life for the world. And this point, this imbecility in the face of reason, it gives me a lot of encouragement. Because when the hate and the intimidation comes my way, I don't know about you, but I tend to take it very personally. I really, really struggle with the lost friendships, with the the, the lost losing face, the public shaming that takes place when people decide to turn against the truth of Christ we preach from Scripture and they attack us for it. I take that very personally, but this passage is, is helping me. I mean, it's giving me some resources It helps me not to take it so personally because the opposition is not necessarily a sign of our failure to do what is right by the people around us. It's much more about the imbecility of choosing to oppose God, even and especially when it makes no sense whatsoever to do so. And recognizing such opposition for what it is helps me not to be so afraid of it or so insecure when it comes. When those who rage against the message we preach, they come and they try to stop this, they may as well ask the sun not to rise tomorrow for all the good it will do. So the fourth thing we see about what it looks like to oppose God is imbecility in the face of reason. The fifth and final thing here about what it looks like to oppose God is motivation for a more sure message. The chapter ends on this note. Verse 41 and 42. Then they, these are the apostles, who were just beat 
and told not to preach and then let go, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Do you see how much good it does to oppose God? All it does in the end is embolden the representatives of God. You see, they perceive the dishonor that comes to them for the sake of the name, they perceive that as evidence of their worth before God. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. Why would they perceive the dishonor as evidence of their worth in God's sight? Because Jesus told them to perceive it that way. He said this in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So friends, when this happens... This, this opposition, this persecution, this shaming, this canceling, it may immediately make you feel isolated and intimidated and unworthy. But ultimately, what it does is it has the effect of lumping you in with God's prophets of old. You see, such opposition that you receive now is proof that you have a serious reward coming your way like the prophets did. I mean, how did God view them? And such, this, you have this serious reward coming and this reward will not rust or decay and nobody can take it from you. In the eyes of faith, if you believe that what Jesus said is true, you cannot help but perceive opposition in this way as evidence of your worth before God. You see, you are so valuable to God that that threatens these people, and they are jealous of it. And so they don't even know what else to do except act like imbeciles towards you. And so when your eyes perceive opposition this way, then your tongue cannot help but continue proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, the chosen one of God, day after day after day, just as they did here in both the temple and from house to house. Friends, if you do not know Jesus as your leader and Savior, today is the day, now is your chance to trust Him and find a life that can never die. And if you do know Jesus, please let opposition to his name motivate you to stay on message and to continue proclaiming him to others. Let that opposition be evidence of your worth in God's sight. Do not grow weary of doing good. 
Do not grow weary of adding people to the Lord. Take refuge in the truth that those who oppose this message and thereby the continuing work of Jesus, they can't stop it any more than they could knock the moon out of its orbit. Oh, they'll try. But their most sincere efforts will only have the opposite effect to what they intend. As this message continues to go out, and many more are rescued by and for the Lord, and the message of this life takes over the old creation, and it remakes families and societies for the glory of God. So what does it look like to oppose God? It looks like jealousy toward the continuing work of Christ. It looks like an inability to set limits on the continuing work of Christ. It looks like rage toward obedience to God. It looks like imbecility in the face of reason. And it looks like motivation for a more sure message. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please motivate us by this and strengthen us to continue the work of Christ to which you have called us. You are our God, Jesus, you are leader and savior, and we look to you for the gifts of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Help us to advance the word of this life. Help us to preach it in our homes, to our families, and help us to preach it in the public square. And we pray that as we face opposition, Lord, please give us eyes to see it for what it is. Help us to see the jealousy and the insecurity at the root of it. And may this motivate us to press on and stay on message. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.